Was that good or was that good? Man, God is good. All right. About pulled an ab worshiping just now. Pulled a hammy. <laughs> if you ever see me go down, you know what happened. <laughs> All right, today's message is uh, entitled Divine Weapons Part 4. We've been talking about the truth, which is the divine weapon that we are talking about right now. And last week, we've talked about objective truth, the fact that truth exists. We've talked about that truth is plain and that it is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. Uh, we have talked after that that uh, we have a personal and individual accountability to this truth that we are responsible for through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll make very clear on that just lightly that uh, your response to the gospel and your obedience to the gospel is not of your own work, but it is a work of the Holy Spirit that God does in you as you have received him and have received the Holy Spirit and now enabled to live according to the word of the Lord and according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have imparted righteousness that's, that makes you justified and righteous before a holy God, okay? But we talked last week about how your immorality and your um, your sin, if you allow them to fester, is, uh, is destructive in your personal life, it's destructive in your home, and it's destructive to our church. So we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 last week, and we saw where Paul says that you must deal with this sin or it's going to defile the church. It is going to bring uh, this, this spirit into the church that is attacking the church, that is uh, grieving the Holy Spirit, and is going to hinder the voice of the Lord and the work of the Lord in this particular church. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with that, and remember, remember last week that uh, I was struggling with my words because I was trying to uh, preach something that uh, wasn't intended for you, and I later realized that the, the word of the Lord that he had for you was that you need to stop sinning personally, and I do too. And re you remember last week that I pleaded with you, please, please examine your hearts, examine your lives. Find out, let the Lord show you the troubled areas in your life and the pet sins that you have that you are keeping around because you desire them and please get rid of them because they are destroying you, they're destroying your home and they are destroying our church. They are hurting our church and we need to bring a, the spirit of the Lord in here and not grieve the spirit of the Lord in here. So, uh, and that is for the family here at the church. You know, uh, obviously there are a lot of people in here, some people in here that don't even believe in the Lord and you say, well, I, I don't even believe in that stuff. I'm not talking to you. I, I am preaching the, the gospel of Christ to you, uh, hoping that he will open your eyes to the truth. You will see your sin. Uh, that you will be disgusted with your sin. You will hand those to Jesus Christ who has killed those sins. But for all of you who proclaim to be believers today, last week I pleaded with you, please, stop sinning because it is hurting the church. And we want to build the church out. We want to build the kingdom. And therefore, we need to pursue Jesus Christ and his work. Now, whereas last week was the individual accountability that we must have uh, to the truth of Christ, today... Uh, we're going to talk about holding the church accountable to the truth of Christ. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, Matthew 18, 15 through 22, and Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Now, there's a lot of information in this sermon. And I'm sure that I will not be able to touch on it all. Uh, but I want to get as much out there as I possibly can. 
And if you uh, didn't get some notes, there's one or two up here maybe. And if you don't get any and you want some, let me know. I can email them to you or print some more out and bring them next week. Uh, last week I made a, um, a statement or uh, gave an idea in passing almost. Uh, as, we, as we spoke last week, I told you that um, you have heard it said that only God can judge me. And I, and I made a statement and I said, the only person, the only ones that can say only God can judge me are unbelievers, and that is what the Bible teaches, that those who claim at least to be believers subject themselves to the judgment of the other Christians around them and the leaders of their particular church, okay? So the only one that can say, only God can judge me, uh, are unbelievers uh, because they have not subjected themselves or submitted themselves to the law of grace that is found in Jesus Christ and therefore submitted themselves to the judgment and the examination of the church and their brothers for accountability. Okay. Uh, now, what I want to do is I want to found, because I had some questions uh, regarding that, you know, what did you mean by that? And so I put a little explanation out there to a couple of people that was asking me about that. But uh, upon praying and searching the scriptures and seeking the Lord and meditating on him, uh, he had shown me that that would be part of what this is because I think a lot of us don't understand that. You see, in our, in our culture, and I can't spend a lot of time on this because I got a lot here, but I want to give you a little foundation of why this is so necessary right now in our time. Because we live in an individualistic society and culture where desire uh, and emotional appetite is king. So what the culture that we live in says it doesn't matter about any rules or regulations. I mean, you have to do what you have to do, but you need to do whatever you need to do to be happy. So if it feels good, then do it. If it is what you uh, long for, then go get it. Uh, it doesn't matter what anybody else says as long as you are happy. And this is kind of the language that I've seen around some of the issues that we've seen uh, in the past few days. Is that how could you want to keep somebody from their happiness? How could you want to keep somebody from being, uh, their desires being met? So you see, we live in an individualistic society where uh, our desires are king and no one can speak into that. And we live in isolation. See, it's not always been that way. Uh, this is really actually a modern idea. Uh, as technology has grown, as um, um, the American ideal and Western civilization has grown into this place to where uh, we fend for ourselves, we do our own thing. We have plenty enough to provide for our own selves. This is mine. Who are you to tell me what I am to do with my stuff, with my life, with my children? And so we live in these separate little categories to where you can't speak into my life. But it's not always been that way. And it's still not that way in Eastern civilization for the most part. What we have is community. And we speak into one another's lives. We examine one another. We look at one another and we say, brother, you're going down the wrong road. And we help hold each other accountable. Not, not in an overbearing, uh, I hate you, you're wrong, you're stupid uh, kind of way. But in a, I love you, I don't want to see you hurt type of way. Uh, don't go down this road. But here in America, we say, shut up. I'll go down whatever road I want to. It's my road. What I have been preaching up to this point is really the combating of that idea is that you have your own road and that you are the master of it. What I have been saying is there's only two roads. There's the road that leads to destruction and there's the road that leads to life. And narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many times 
almost every time in order to go down the narrow path, we must put aside our own selfish desires and our own selfish ambitions and our self-righteousness, and we must, in large part, put to death the desires of the flesh. You say, well, I've always felt this way. I've always wanted this. So what? I've always wanted to be number one. That does not make it right. That's called pride and idolatry. I need to kill my sin through the cross of Christ. Let, cross, let, let Jesus kill my sin. And I need to let other people speak into my life. Okay? Now that is the foundation of why this sermon is so absolutely necessary in our day. And it has been for a long time. But we must realize that our culture is not right. And it may be a lie that everyone deserves to be happy. Now I'm not speaking of joy happy and do whatever they want to make themselves feel good if i had time and i thought about saying i'll hang around for a little bit to discuss why this is a bad idea even talking outside of the scriptures when you allow someone to just say well if it feels good do it the implications of that lived out in a consistent lifestyle is a horrific reality you telling me that we should just let people do what makes them feel good all the time and it's wrong to tell them not to do it that's another sermon for another day what I want to do today is I want to show you is it is it right for us to let's go to the next slide so the thesis of this sermon uh, the goal of this and you know I laid this one out last week I was like going by the seat of my pants it's just the Lord I don't know I just take what he gives me the goal of this sermon is to give the people a proper understanding of if we are to judge, so does judging exist in a right context, is it okay, who we are to judge, how we are to judge, and why we are to judge, okay? Uh, part of the problem is wrapped up in the word judge or judging. Uh, the prayer is that this sermon would lead the people, you and me, to understand what happened at the cross and how that uh, should affect how we walk in the truth and how we hold others accountable to that truth. Let's pray over this sermon. Let's pray over our own hearts, our own minds, our own ideologies that we would give them over to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit teach us today and uh, make it uh, written on our heart. Jesus, I am but a man. I do my best to understand what it is that you're trying to tell me to tell them. This truth has resonated inside of me, and I know that today, even if it doesn't come out as clear as I would like for it to, that you have, you have shaped and molded me to a greater degree through this word. And so I say that to say that if no one else out here under the sound of my voice gets anything from this, uh, you still get glory because you have done a work inside of me, and uh, I'm thankful for that. My prayer today, oh Jesus, is that you would come in like a thief to steal away our deceitful ideas. Come like a thief in the night to slay and to steal away our sin, to bury it in the tomb where you lay. Help us, God, to see with your eyes and to feel with your heart and to hear with your ears. Help us, God, to realize that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Help us, God, to realize that we do not know what we need, but we need you to show us that which we need. I pray, God, that your spirit, even as I speak, would begin a work in my heart and in these hearts here that would give us a revelation of what it means to surrender and follow you
what it means to take up our cross, deny our flesh, and follow you. Please, Lord, turn us into true believers who mortify and kill the fleshly desires in order to glorify you, that your name would be honored forevermore. In Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, so we're going to jump all over the Bible today, um, but there are three main texts, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Matthew 18, 15 through 22, and Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Number one, the first thing that I want to do uh, in this sermon, the first goal that I have uh, in this sermon is to give an understanding of the biblical idea of judging and if it should be done by anyone. So the big question is, well, I've always heard it said, judge not lest you be judged, or only God can judge me. I've heard this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Isn't that written in the Bible somewhere? Isn't that right? I mean, should, I mean, you're not judged. Who are you? Who are you to look down your nose at me, and who are you to judge me, right? And so the question is, is that are we to judge? Is it right for us to look at someone and say, what you are doing is wrong? Uh, is that self-righteous? Well, I think it can be. Does it have to be? Does the Lord permit or even command us to judge those around us, to examine those around us and make judgments about their life? Does the Lord do that? I want to look at a couple of different uh, verses here. Let's go ahead to the next one. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Doesn't that mean we are never to judge anyone? Because that's what people use this for. They'll pull this one verse out. Actually, it's only half the verse. They'll pull this one verse out, and they'll say, see there? Judge not, lest you be judged. But then Jesus also said, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. In John chapter 7, verse 24. So here, doesn't that mean we are supposed to judge people? but only do it rightly. You see, there's an apparent contradiction. It looks as if Jesus says one thing and then contradicts himself by saying another thing because he very clearly tells us, judge not lest you be judged. Then he turns around and tells us, don't judge by appearance, but judge rightly. So he says, don't judge, and then he says, judge. So what are we to think? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is Jesus Christ contradicting himself? Is he telling a lie in one of them? Because we know uh, that two truths that oppose one another cannot stand. It's the law of non-contradiction. It doesn't stand. One of them has to be a lie, right? So what do we do with this apparent contradiction? Is it a contradiction? No, not at all. You see, what we have here is someone for their own agenda uh, taking a verse and doing what we say as pulling it out of context. What this means is, is that we have a preconceived notion of what we think things should be. Then we go to the Bible and we find a verse that backs up what we say and we pluck it from its context and from its meaning within that context and we say, see there? But what you have done is you have manipulated the text, you have deceived everyone that you are speaking with, and you, my friend, are lying. So, we look then and we say, okay, well, how do we, how do we deal with this? You see, there is admittedly apparent, and, 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 uh, apparent contradiction, but 
there exists no contradiction. This, however, is easily solved with a little investigation and uh, a little footwork into the verse. So if you want to look over with me at Matthew chapter 7, where he says, judge not lest you be judged, we'll look at that. We'll look at several other verses. Uh, but first of all, first off, I want to show you this right here. Now listen. Here's the apparent contradiction. These verses here seem to be saying, do not judge, judge not. These two verses seem to say judge. This says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Look at this, pay attention. Because you judge, uh, because you, the judge, practice the same thing. What is it called when we make a judgment on someone, but we are doing the very thing that we're telling them not to do? Hypocrite, hypocrisy, okay? James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against him, uh, against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this seems to be teaching that you shouldn't judge, but what is the context and what does he preface it by here? Do not speak evil. This is an evil judgment. This is, does not come out of uh, love. It does not come out of, of anything but self-righteousness and evil intention. Now, compare that with these two verses that tell us to judge. 724, John 724, we've already talked about. Do not judge by appearance, but what? Read it with me. So one more time. Judge with right judgment. Let's, let's read another. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you competent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters of life? What does he say here? What is the indication? What's that word? It is this idea that it are, it are, it's those who love Christ and are holy and are pursuing him and are uh, founded on this love and this righteousness that is from God and not from man. It's not self-righteous judgment, but it is the Lord that is calling us to examine for the uplifting of the church. So we see that this is a, this is a very easy to overcome this apparent contradiction by saying this one simple statement. That there is no contradiction whatsoever that it is only two different uses of the same word. There is no contradiction to be found, only two different uses of the same word. We have in one sense Jesus saying don't judge. But if we preface that with the context, he would say don't judge in an evil way through your own self-righteousness with evil intentions. And then he would say, but do judge in a right way. He says that very plainly in John 24. Don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So are we to judge? Yes. The, the Bible's very clear. We are to judge. We are to examine. And if the word offends you, because in our society, this word judging has a negative connotation, that is not a scriptural problem. The word is krino in the Greek. That is, has nothing to do with that word. That is our preconceived notions and our own uh, 
subjecting that word to what we think. So when we say, don't judge me, it automatically has a, a negative connotation to it. So what I would say is if you would rather, if it makes you feel any better, then you could say examination or accountability. Does that make you feel better? So we are not to judge someone, but we are to examine and love and hold them accountable. It's still judging. It's just not your push-button, hot-topic word, okay? Uh, but the word is the word. You are to judge, okay? I'm not going to change the scriptures to please man, right? So you are to judge, but you are to judge rightly. That's exactly right. So let's continue on as we pursue, because now what we have found is, is that there is no contradiction to be found, only two different uses of the same word. So how can we outline these two different uses of this word? So number one is, let's define this. And these are just my terms. I, you know, I explained it the best I could. The first use of the word is righteous human judgment. Now, put righteous human judgment because in all that I say today, hear me say this. What I am not saying to you is that you judge the eternal position of the heart and of the soul. That's not your place. We can't do that. For the Lord looks at the heart and he examines the heart. The Lord sees past the outer shell to the greatest degree. It is him who in the end will judge between the wheat and the tares, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats. I am not telling you that you are to presume the role of God and pronounce eternal judgment on someone. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is there is a righteous human judgment and it has at least these three characteristics that I found in the scriptures that we're looking at. The first is, that righteous human judgment is commanded to lead people to God. This is not taking the role of God over the people, but it is taking a role for the people to lead them to God. It is, it is commanded even, Jesus says, judge rightly. It's commanded to lead people to God. The second is it is founded on love and seeks salvation. The third is that uh, righteous human judgment is done by the word of God after self-examination using the word of God. So we do not preach and teach and judge based on what we think to be right or what we think we see, but we examine each other after we have examined ourselves and then we provide this judgment or this examination by the word of God for the uplifting of that person, for the redemption of their souls. You following so far? You tracking with me? All right, so the second use of the word is an unrighteous human judgment. Uh, an unrighteous human judgment, unlike a righteous human judgment, it doesn't seek to lead people to God, but instead it is sinful and seeks to take the place of God. This is the problem with unrighteous human judgment is that we, we stand in the place of God and we condemn people for their sin. Uh, for the express purpose of condemnation. So we, we, we put ourselves in the place of God and say, you sinner. But this is, not, this is not right. Unrighteous human judgment is founded on evil intent and self-righteousness, and it is done in hypocrisy. There's no self-examination. There's no love. There is no submission to Christ and, and examining yourself. So uh, we have the picture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus Christ says, Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, how can you tell your brother to remove the speck out of his own eye when you've got a log in your own eye? And the picture is, I always like to make the pictures in my mind, the picture is this guy walking around, and he's got this huge log just hanging out of his eye. And he goes over to his brother, 
and he, and he says, let me get that speck, boom, and knocks him out with the log. Your judgment isn't helping anyone, but it's leaving lumps on people's heads. And when they see you coming next time, they're going to duck and get out of the way. They're going to run from you. You're not going to lead them to Christ. You're going to push them away from God because you keep hitting them in the head with a darn log hanging out of your eye. Amen? So does Jesus just say, don't you judge? No. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, John chapter 7, put it with the context. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, he says, you hypocrite, comma, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So should you just leave the speck in your brother's eye and not judge him? Oh, that would be unloving of me to tell him that he shouldn't have that speck. I mean, maybe he likes the speck. I don't know. Maybe he loves having specks in his eye. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a desirable thing to have a speck in your eye. I wouldn't want to offend anyone. It might be a golden speck. Oh, that's stupid. Is that stupid? I know I just look stupid, but what I was saying was stupid too, right? Not that what I was saying was stupid, but the idea of what I was saying is stupid, right? Okay, back to the topic at hand. The bottom line is Jesus didn't say don't judge at all. He says don't judge unrighteously. Take the log out of your eye and then yes, go over to your brother and say this speck may blind you. Let's get it out of there, brother. But first, take this, the log out of your own eye so that you don't leave lumps on everyone's heads. How? And you know, I didn't know when I started planning this sermon about what was going to happen. How fitting is the Lord's word? If I hear of any of you going out and beating people over the head with logs that are homosexuals, I will come and beat you with your own log. You hear me? Should you try and remove that speck? Yeah. But you better get the log out of your own eye, and it better be with righteous human judgment that is built on love, the Word of God, and seeks redemption and salvation. That's my declaration from this stage as the lead pastor of this church. That's our stance. Understood? Amen. If you got a problem with that, you can see me after this. All right. Love and righteousness. Now, am I saying that, you know, don't say a word to them, you know, don't? No. I, you know where I stand on it. I'm just telling you that there is a way to wage war that is not like this world. Okay? Can I move on? We good? All right. So, now, we have established that judgment does exist in a good way. And that you are not, you don't only have the right to judge, not only is it permissible to judge, but that actually you are commanded to judge or examine the lives of other people. Now the question remains, since we're at this point is, okay, we've established the fact that there is a righteous human judgment. There is a way that you should judge those around you. Uh, now, who is it that we should judge? If judging does exist, and not only exists, but is commanded, then who is it that we should judge? So the second goal of this sermon uh, is to give an understanding of who, how, and why we should judge. So let's address the question of who first. If we look at uh, John chapter 7, Matter of fact, just any of the places where Jesus speaks of judging, but within the realm of where we are, 
If we look at Matthew chapter 7, if we look at Matthew chapter 18, uh, where we are right now, Jesus only uses one way to describe those that are being judged. He calls them brothers. Good job. That's the only way he describes them. Now, we could look at this and say, okay, well, that's just who he was speaking with at the time. So um, is that really, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. Is that really the only one? So Jesus only speaks of judging a brother or false prophets, and these would be uh, so-called brothers. So it would still fall into the category of brothers or those that claim to be brothers. This is the only one that Jesus actually speaks to. But now, could it be different? I mean, could Jesus just be at that time speaking to his brothers. It could be. It's possible, okay? So uh, we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 13. I want to read everything. I would definitely get some of these notes or at least be writing your own notes of these scriptures. Go back and look for yourself. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 13, uh, Paul specifies who we are to judge and uh, gives us a very clear understanding. Paul just tells us clearly in verse 12 that we are to only judge those inside the church, okay? That we are to judge only those inside the church. Now, let me just read here uh, for a moment this passage of Scripture because some of the things that I'm about to, stu- about to say, it may rile some of you up because I'm about to get real with you. I- I'm about to show you what the Bible says that we are to do that we are not doing. And in my estimation, we need to repent and start doing what the Lord calls us to do, which is why I'm trying to get you ready. Okay? My wife just said, please, Lord, just have a minute. All right. Listen, I'm just going to read the Bible to you. Don't take anything that I say uh, to heart because it's what I say. You got the notes. You got your Bible. If I get outside this Bible, you have every right, and you better come and tell me, because i got to get back inside of it. I am simply proclaiming the Word of God to you, okay? This is not my Word. Remember, this is not my truth. This is the truth of Jesus Christ found in His Word that I am simply teaching you in, that I am learning in, so that we both can live according to the Word of the Lord. I am not above you. I am learning like you are learning, and we are going together. I've got junk in my life, too, I'm trying to get rid of, all right? This is helping me. Okay, so here we go. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Do you hear what I just said? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, we'll talk about what that means. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There he goes judging again. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that... His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Very, very important qualification right there. You remember there is unrighteous human judgment and there is righteous human judgment. This so that, whenever you see a so that, you need to look and see why it's there. So that his spirit 
may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's continue to read. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Meaning that a little bit of impurity just messes up the whole thing. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now listen to this right here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You ever heard that before? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people. Now let me point out something here. It does not say expressly just homosexuals right there. Sexually immoral people. How many in here watch porn? You don't got to raise your hand, please don't. <laughs> your wife's like, boom. No. How many of you uh, sleep with your girlfriend? How many of you masturbate? How many of you lust after women all the time? How many of you tell dirty jokes? Do not associate with the sexually immoral. Well, Brandon, I'd have to just hide in the closet. <laughs> and then I'm there. I wrote to you in my letter, not so let's qualify a little bit. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy. Now he's going to put a few other things in there. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So don't associate with sexually immoral people. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're everywhere. What are you going to do? Where are you going to hide? Where are you going to go? Oh, Lord, I'm just going to hide in the closet, you know, with a doyle on my head, sit and wait for the Lord to return. Do not associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all many of the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since the world, uh, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, here it is, the qualifier, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I just read the Bible. So, some of you are like, <laughs> is he going to kick me out right now? <laughs> no, I'm not. Let me, uh, let me try to explain who is to be judged, okay, and how. See, what we were talking about who. Now, Paul expressly and clearly said it is those inside the church that are to be judged, right? Was that very clear? I just read the Bible, and that's what it says. So we judge those inside the church and not those outside the church. We judge those that claim to be brothers, but their lifestyles prove otherwise. Okay? So now what I want to do is here we find three distinctions uh, within, mm, let me see. 
Yeah. We find three distinctions within the, the text of three different types of people that, is, that, are, that are inside the church. So we got to really clarify some language, okay? So we have those inside the church, so we're going to call those insiders. We have another group that's inside the church, but they only claim to be Christians or brothers, but their lives prove otherwise, so I'm going to call them two-siders. Now, I don't know if anybody else uses these terms, but this is what the Lord gave me. So we have insiders. This is the true church. These are those who love Jesus, and, and again, let me preface this by saying, we are not the eternal judge. I am not saying that we look and we say, oh, yep, you're true, you're true, you're true, and you're true. I am not saying that. That is not our job. Only the Lord knows the heart. But what I am saying is that as we look and see the evidence that is presented before us, we make this call upon examination that we can use in our day-to-day lives. So when I say insiders in true church, all I mean is, is that when we look and examine their life, they seem to be the real deal. You don't know if they are or not. They could very well look really, really good. As a matter of fact, Jesus has a place in the scriptures right after Matthew chapter 7 where he says, some of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, uh, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Even though you cast out demons and did all of these crazy miraculous signs. So there's these people that look amazingly like believers. They even casting out demons and healing people and, and going around doing all these crazy stuff. And the Lord still looks at them and says, depart from me. I never knew you. So we have no idea who this really is but we can examine the life and we can have a pretty good idea about who this is enough for what we need it for and that is to hold each other accountable for love's sake okay so i'll call the second group two-siders and i'll say this is the false church again we don't know if this is really the false church because we can't examine the heart. But what we can do is examine the evidences and the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit on the tree, and we can look and we say, well, they say they are, but they really don't seem to be. Does this make sense? I am not judging and saying, you are and you aren't. What I'm saying is, is that by your life, it doesn't seem to be. Let's, let's please get down on our knees and pray. And then there are those that are outside the church, okay? Now, I say outsiders and I say unchurched, but these are those that make no claim whatsoever to be Christians or to believe in Jesus, okay? They may be agnostic. They may be atheistic. They may be whatever, but they don't say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to understand, too, and I have no idea what time it is. If you need to go, I I think, is y'all liking this, this good stuff? The word of the Lord, you need to know this, okay? Uh, This has nothing to do with a church building. Not at all. None of this has anything to do with a church building. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, uh, let him uh, who has done this be removed from among you. He doesn't necessarily mean put him outside the church building. I want to do this right here. This is the church building, Okay? Inside the walls of the church, and and it's not expressly inside the walls of the church, but for the purposes here, you have this smaller core group that are true Christians. Man, they're hardcore. They love Jesus. They worship every day. They're in their Bibles. Uh, You know, they they may be false, but every, every evidence points to them being the true church of God, and they love God, and they pursue him, and they fail and they fall sometimes, but they repent and they, and they get up. Now, you have this other uh, group in here that are the 
two-siders, uh, okay? So the, the, let's say, the true church and we're going to say false church, but these are the two-siders. And again, this is just those inside the church that they make a claim to Christianity, but they don't really live according to the scriptures. And so we, we talk to them, we examine them, and then there's another group that would be more like this right here. And if I had more room, that would actually be bigger out here. This is the unchurched right here that make no claim to be Christians whatsoever. But you can see that there are some uh, unbelievers or unchurched inside the church walls. There are those in here that they don't claim to, to be a believer of Jesus Christ. You know, they're, they're here. They like what's going on. They're trying to figure it out. Um, they, don't, they don't necessarily believe exactly like we believe. Maybe one day they will. We pray, not because we, you better believe like us, but because we desire the salvation of their souls. But this is the unchurched out here as well. And so we treat these people differently, and we judge these pre people differently. So Paul says that we are to judge these two groups, that we are not to judge these, but we are only to evangelize this group. Now, as we continue on, we're looking now at who is it that we are to judge. Uh, and it's very clear that we are to judge those inside the church, those that claim to be believers, those that are believers. We look and we examine their lives and we say, uh, look, we've got to help you in this area. Let us pronounce a judgment, not for condemnation, but for redemption and reconciliation. So we say that we only judge those who are inside the church, those that claim to be Christians, and those that submit themselves, at least through word, to Jesus Christ. We read out here, and I'm not going to read all of this because uh, I just explained it, explained it, but the insiders or the true church, these are the only ones who are to judge. The true church are the only ones who are to judge. Now, this logically follows. I want you to ask why. Why? What did I read to you early? What was, what was the conditions or the uh, requirements in order to judge someone? What was it? Huh? Self-examination, right? And out of love. Now, if you're two-siders and you're the false church and you say that you're a believer but you live otherwise, does that take you out of being able to judge? Yes, why? What do we call this? Huh? Somebody said a hypocrite. If you're two-faced, if you're a two-sider, if you say that you're a Christian and you go to church and you do all that thing, yet you go into the world and you live just however you want to live, then you're a two-sider. You, you say one thing, but you do another thing. Therefore, you have no right to judge anyone. Okay? Does this follow? This is not my word. This is, this is the Lord, okay? So we see that there are three different... Uh, we see then that this truth emerges from the scriptures that we effectively have three types of people in the scriptures which this judgment pertains to. We have insiders, two-siders, and outsiders, okay? We have no place in judging outsiders. With, in light of recent events, uh, why do we expect those outside the church and those that never proclaim that they are followers of Christ, why do we expect them to be in line with the scriptures? I mean, Why? I see on Facebook like people just bashing people in the face and, you know, just hating them. And, and I'm like, what do you expect? Did you think that they were going to be worshipers and in love with the word of God? You're the one that looks silly. Why are you putting expectations on someone and you're not even doing what you are called to do? And I can honestly say that because God calls us not to hate. You see, we have no right to judge those outside the church because they don't submit themselves to the, God has already judged them. And he had already judged you too. 
But you have escaped that judgment because of the judgment that was placed on Christ. And we'll get to that in a second. But the bottom line is, is that we are to only judge those inside the church and hold them accountable to what they said they were. You see how the judgment starts to play out? It's not like you're saying, well, I'm telling you, you got to do. No, you're saying, you said that you were a Christian. You said that Jesus Christ was your life. You said that the Holy Spirit had come in. You said that you submit. You confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord. You're not living how you said you were going to live, and it's going to come back to hurt you. Please, let's reconsider this. How can I help you to repent of these sins? Let's repent together because I've got my own sins too. You see, this is an uplifting and an encouraging and redemptive judgment and examination. It is based solely on love, which leads us to the how. And I'm almost done, believe it or not. Jesus teaches us, and I hope you're right and fast, because this is a message that is not preached. I've never heard this message preached. I have never heard it preached. So... Okay, we've looked at the who. Do you understand? Shake heads no. I want to know you understand because I don't just want to hear myself speak. You understand the who, who we are to judge. Do you understand that we are to judge? This is yes. This is no. This is like, I don't even know where I'm at right now. (laughs) This is fun, isn't it? It's fun. I love the word of God. I love it. Even though it just cuts me in two sometimes. So, okay, we've looked at the who. Uh, we understand the who. Who? Now we say how. So we know we are to judge, and we know who we are to judge, but now how are we to judge? Okay? Good practical stuff right here. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we've already talked about this a little bit. I will not spend a lot of time here. Jesus teaches us that before any judging of others is to be done, that we must examine and judge ourselves. Matthew 7, 5 reads, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I was going to have a prop and a uh, demonstration of this uh, because I think that word pictures help and uh, that type of stuff helps, but I, I kind of displayed it a while ago. The picture is of this guy who's got a massive log hanging out of his eye, and he can't get anywhere near you. There's no relationship. You know, it's just me hammering you with a truth uh, that's not even, not even legit, and it's not coming through the right way. It's, it doesn't have the right foundation. So he says, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't need to elaborate on that any. That's very, very plain. plain. Don't, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be living uh, in, in drunkenness, going home and getting drunk three nights a week and then putting on Facebook, you know, homos or, you know, God hates. That's terrible. You hypocrite. Get your face off of Facebook. Don't speak, okay? Uh, don't talk. You get your junk in order, and then you can come back and let's have a discussion uh, in love by the word of the Lord for reconciliation. Because if you speak out of hate, you've already spoken the wrong way, and you need to shut your mouth. And so do I if I speak that way, right? We speak for love and that purpose only. So we examine ourselves. Now, uh, do we need to be perfect in order to pronounce judgment over someone or examine someone else's life? No, we know if that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't command us to judge and expect us to do it because none of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? 
So it's not a perfection that is required, but a self-examination and a love for Jesus Christ and a pure life that is free from habitual sin. You're going to fall. You're going to sin. That's why your brother that you are capable of judging hopefully is capable of judging you. It almost seems as if in this sermon I have set it up to make a clear distinction between somebody's judging and somebody's getting judged. Sometimes that's the case in uh, those who claim to be Christians but are clearly not. But we also have this type of judging that uh, me and a brother, say me and Dan, for instance, or me and Mark, or uh, me and Robert, or me and several of you, I can name many across the board in here, that you know I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. I'm not hounding you all the time because of the little sins in your life. You know, you fall and you bump your head and... I don't come over you and say, you bumped your head, you moron. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. What am I doing? I'm coming, I'm going to grab you, I'm going to pick you up and say, man, you all right? Now, if, if you fall and you hit your head and you lay there and you continue to beat your head on the ground, I'm going to come over and say, what are you doing? This is stupid. Come on, let me help you up, man. Stop doing that. You look ridiculous. It's going to hurt you. Right? You fall into sin and you go back to sin and back to sin and back to sin and back to sin and back to sin. Then I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to judge you. I'm going to examine. I'm going to say, man, please, what are you doing? What are you doing? So that you could get back to a place of oneness with Jesus Christ and repentance so that you can look at me too and then because sometimes I fall and hit my head. And I fall and my face lands in a pile of manure. Right? And I'm like... And you're like, what are you doing? Break it up. That stinks. And I'm like, I thought it smelled good for a minute. <laughs> you're like, no, this is deception. Everybody knows it stinks. Get up. Lift me up. And that's not, that's scriptural, you know, because Paul says all of our righteousness is like what? Ugh. And all, all, of, all, of our, uh, all of our good deeds and all of this world is a pile of heaping dung that steams in comparison to Jesus Christ. We all fall. We all fall, right? So we judge each other. We judge each other so that we can come back to this. So uh, he says, take the log out of your own eye, uh, and then you can see rightfully to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When we have the proper motives and are in the right position, we can proceed to, proceed to examine and judge others. Jesus teaches us in the process of judgment and church discipline in Matthew 18 extensively. I don't have time to get into that. One day I will. If you want to uh, catch me, we can sit down and have a discussion. There is a proper procedure for church discipline and to call someone out on sin. Okay? Uh, you... And I, and I really can't get into all of that, but there is a way to do it. And you have to go through this, um, this really due process, so to speak. Okay? It's not to be a quick judgment. If my brother seems to be in sin, remember John uh, 7, 24, that we do not judge by appearance, but we judge rightly. That means by necessity, it must be slow. And we investigate. Now, sometimes it, it calls for a quick response. If I see a brother a so-called brother, and I find out that he's texting a woman and he's married that's not his wife, then I'm going to quickly go to him and I'm going to jerk him up. Not out of my self-righteousness, but out of love for him and protection for his family. I'm not going to watch him do that. I'm not going to watch him go down that road because, well, if it feels good to you, you see the door that opens. You see the door that opens. 
Well, if it feels good, just do it. Well, what about his family? Hey, don't deny the man his pleasure. Who are you to try to keep him from being happy? I'm his brother. And I'm going to keep him from being happy if it keeps him from being dead. Food for thought. Uh, Jesus teaches us the process of judgment and church discipline in Matthew 18 uh, extensively. Go and read that yourself. The way that we go about this righteous judgment is through slow and careful examination and, con and conversation. So we don't speak at someone. We speak with someone. Okay? That's another thing that ticks me off. Look, if you want to speak, there are, there are many of you in this room that I have given permission to judge me. You know it. I've told Mark expressly. He's got permission. Hambone's got permission. Robert has permission. Wesley has permission, among several others in this room. Obviously, my wife has permission. <laughs> I love you, babe. Take it easy on me, all right? Where was I? <laughs> so that we give people this uh, permission uh, because we know that they are going to have a conversation with us and not speak at us. I don't need somebody breathing down my neck going, you, 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 you. No, I need somebody to come alongside of me and say, let's talk for a second. You, if you don't have a relationship with, if you don't, if you don't have a relationship with someone, do not think that you can pronounce judgment on them, even if they're a so-called believer. Now, you go to them and you talk with them about their sin, and that's fine, but you need to get, that's why relationship is so important within the church. That's why bucket groups are so important. That's why prayer meetings are so important. That's why outings are so important. You think we do these things just because they're fun? They are fun, but we need to build these relationships. If you know me well, then you'll see the sin clearly in my life. And you'll have the freedom to come and speak with me about it. And I need for you to. Now, I might get a little upset because we all get a little upset when we're told that we're wrong. But prayerfully, if I love Jesus and you love Jesus and what you have said is biblical then prayerfully, I will start to examine what you have said and I will let it change me because it was done in love and by the word of God. And it will then restore me to Jesus Christ. And if you restore to Jesus Christ, we know that Christ is all the reality in the world that is true. So you've restored me to the universe. You've restored me to the truth of Christ that is the interwoven piece of the universe. It is for the uplifting. I might have just went above your head. You don't understand what I'm saying? There's this whole thing wrapped up in the word shalom that we'll talk about one day, but for now we'll, we'll use that. Uh, if the offender refuses to repent after due process found in Matthew 18, then the offender is to be treated as an unbeliever and put out of the church. We are to treat them as an unbeliever and put them out of the church. Treating them as an unbeliever or a Gentile a tax collector is Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter, or chapter 18. That's his words, not mine. That's Jesus' words. If they will not repent after you have went through the due process the right way, then you are to uh, treat them as a tax collector and an unbeliever. Now, does that mean that you are to hate them and be evil to them? Well, did Jesus, was Jesus hateful and mean and, and condemning of tax collectors and, and Gentiles? No. Now, he did tell them that what you're doing is wrong, but I love you and I am offering a way of truth for you. Believe in me and go and sin no more. He didn't accept their sin. He called their sin, sin, but he did it in love and compassion. As a matter of fact, when all of the religious leaders were turning their back on all of these people who were sinning, Gentiles and tax collectors, those that were not the people of the Lord, 
Jesus Christ received criticism and eventually was murdered by them because he loved Gentiles and tax collectors. You are to lay down your life for the truth of the gospel that it might reach Gentiles and tax collectors. So I'm not telling you to put them out of the church in hate. I'm not telling you to kick them out, but you are to put them out. Now, let's, yeah, let's say this. Um, so what does that mean? This does not mean put, put them outside of the church, treat them as unbelievers. What does that mean? Let's clarify. Because that could, be, that could be taken to mean that you are to be condemning and mean. But that's not at all what it means. This does not mean that they are not allowed back in the church building. Remember, again, here's the church building. We have unchurched in the building. We have Gentiles and tax collectors here in the building right now. Uh, some of them don't profess to be believers at all. Uh, some of them are false uh, church, and they claim to be, but their life doesn't add up. And then there are some here. So there are the unchurched in here. So that doesn't mean that we put them outside the building and we don't, we don't uh, let them hear the truth. We don't do anything. What it does mean is that uh, it means that the true church must break from a sustaining, confirming, and intimate relationship that grants the offender special privileges and influence in the body. Discipline for them and protection of the body. Does that come through? Does that make sense? What this means is, is that we don't allow them, if they're persistent in sin, in a sinful lifestyle, and they are claiming to be brothers, we don't allow them to influence others and we don't, we don't maintain them in their sin. Does that make sense? We don't confirm their sin. We don't, we don't acknowledge their sin as righteousness and confirm them inside of it. Does this make sense? This is putting them outside of that, that interwoven core. So, therefore, if there's someone here who gets drunk every week, I want you to come. But I would never put you in a place of leadership. Never. If there's someone here who uh, is coming every week, but you're a porn addict, and I find out, you will not be in leadership here. Now, I can find a way for you to experience relationship and, and feel love and hear the gospel, uh, but I can't let you influence the flock that the Lord has given me to protect. Is this making sense? It's just the guarding. And... Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, you are to remove them from the church so that they would be, uh, you are to put them out of the church, uh, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, is how it reads. What does that mean? You are to hand them over to Satan for the destruction. What it means is, is that, you see, they are founded and living and thriving, so to speak, on their own fleshly desires, and you are helping them to do that by cradling them in their sin. You are making it seem as if it is okay when it is not by just loving and embracing them and allowing them to speak in your life, not calling that sin, sin, and, and affirming it, so to speak. So... The, the idea is, and if you can make this, that we put them outside. It's, it, okay, the, the Lord just gave me this. How about this? Have you ever seen a family who has a 25-year-old son that just feeds off of them? I just heard somebody go, oh, boy, do I ever. <laughs> uh, he's continually going to jail. He's continually eating up all the groceries in the house smoking weed, 
spending all his money on drugs and snorting, doing all this kind of staying out all night long, coming in at all hours of the night, bringing his thieving buddies over and all this kind of stuff, right? What's the very definite? What, what, what should you do? Huh? What? Light him up. We're talking about love here, Charlie. <laughs> this is a perfect parallel. What, what are you to do? You are to put him outside of the house. Yeah, let him face his consequences. Uh, we call it tough love. <laughs> Charlie's like, that's what I meant. Mine just had a right cross followed by an elbow. <laughs> so it's tough love. You see, we're not saying, I hate you, get out of my presence. No, we're saying, I love you, and God loves you, but I cannot enable you. I am going to break this intimate fellowship that withholds you and sustains you within your sin because you need to feel the effects of your sin. Not because I hate you and I want you to hurt. It kills me. It kills me to put you out. I don't do it. I don't do it to hurt you because hurting you is hurting me. I do it for the redemption of your soul and for the love of God that you might be brought back into the fold, that you, your flesh might be devoured by Satan and that you would look like the prodigal son who was in the field eating the slop of the pigs and you might look back at the church. You would look back at the embrace of your brothers, that you would look back at the redemption of Christ and you would say, even my father's slaves eat better than me. And that you would long to be back in Christ's embrace. You put them out of the church for love. Even though it's hard. You put them out for love so that their souls might be saved. Tough love. You cut them off. You don't pay the bills anymore because they're not doing what they are supposed to do. What they committed themselves to do. So we've already gotten into, so we look at how we do it with love. Do we do it? Yes, we must do it. But we do it with love. I've got to touch on this um, real quick because it might be a sense where we say, well, he's done this 50 times. I can't, I'm, not, I'm not even messing with this again. When Jesus went through Matthew 18, I understand this later. Some of you have to go. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, y'all just getting ready. Okay, my bad. <laughs> it's like, call me out. I'm going to come like, kick you like a ninja. Uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus goes through this whole thing of church discipline and how we are to judge, right? And then he says we are to treat them as an unbeliever, meaning that we are to break that type of fellowship with him because uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 clearly teaches that we are not to be unequally yoked. That's why I won't marry a, a Christian to a non-Christian. You say, that's crazy. No, it's not. It's the exact same thing. I would not subject you to be led by someone who is not a Christian in this church. I would not marry someone who is not going to lead each other well uh, through Christ and the family. That you, you, that's one of the only reasons that I won't marry two people. But it's a very, very good reason. It's for the protection of the family. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, do not be unequally yoked or bound together with someone who doesn't believe, right? 
And so we can't do that. But then what if they come and they say, oh, I repent, I repent. Right after Matthew 18, when he says to break that fellowship and to uh, take your sin before him. Now, if he asks forgiveness, you, re- you forgive him and you accept him back in. Now, you do that carefully. and You don't just put them right back into leadership. You watch their life. You examine them. And if uh, they've repented and they've shown themselves to be repentant and they uh, come back in, then you put them back where you need to go uh, as the Lord leads. Right? Right? Uh, now, how many times should you forgive? Right after that, Jesus says, this is how you are to judge. This is how you are to exercise church discipline. And then in the following section of scriptures, the, my Bible breaks it up. I don't think it should be broke up. Right after that, Peter says, how many times, Lord, should I forgive them if they come and ask forgiveness? Seven times? <laughs> seven times? Peter's like, I'm only doing that junk seven. You tell me I forgive. I'm only doing that seven times. Mess with me. Mess with me the eighth time. You know what Jesus says? You are to forgive them 70 times, seven times. You know what that means? What's the word seven stand for in the scripture? Huh? Completion, fulfillment, excess, wholeness. You are to do it as many times as it takes to bring them to a completeness. Your job reconciliation now we've talked a lot about the wine as we stand to our feet I'll give you the big wine so we know that judging exists we know now who we are to judge we know now how we are to judge and we've been given a pretty good idea of why we are to judge but let's look a little deeper into why we are to judge and this is short because uh, it's powerful You see, we are to judge uh, to gain our brother back. Uh, Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 that if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The implication is that you are trying to get something back that is lost or at least seemingly lost, which is redemption and reconciliation. He also teaches in a section that if the offender does not repent, then we are to treat them as a tax collector and as Gentile, which means that we are to go into evangelism mode, that we are to love them with the gospel, that we are to preach Christ, that we are to preach love, that we are to preach repentance of sin and the following of Jesus Christ for the redemption from that sin. But the main reason and the foundational reason that we are to do this type of judging is so that in the end, at the final judgment that will be given by Jesus Christ, we give this judgment so that they can escape that judgment. How does it work? You see, we judge them here crying out to them what? We judge them here crying out, don't go into the judgment unprepared. Don't go into the great judgment unprepared. What you're doing is wrong. You need to turn and you need to repent. And you don't need to head into that judgment in this position because it will not go well for you. It will be destruction. It will be separation for all of eternity, the rest of eternity, forever. Forever you will be separated from the Lord. From the time you stand before him with unclean hands and an unpure heart, without the blood of Christ covering you, you will be in destruction for forever. Don't go into that judgment unprepared. You have an advocate with the Father. You see, we cry out to them, please, don't go 
forward to that judgment. We plead with them through judging and examining their lives that they not go into that judgment unprepared. But that rather they would trade the judgment that was poured out on Christ. You see, in every way, Jesus Christ was judged in an unfair way. And he was proclaimed guilty when he was actually innocent so that you could be proclaimed innocent though you were actually guilty. You see, he didn't have a fair trial. He didn't have due process. There were false witnesses that were easily known to be false. They lied against him. They deceived. They had the trial at night, which was against the law. They condemned him to death without due process. The cross was not even a justifiable means of execution in the Jewish system of law. You see, Jesus Christ was condemned unjustly and was judged wrongly with unrighteous judgment so that you could escape your guilty conscience. If I come to you, brother, and I judge you and examine your life, please know that the only reason I do it is so that you might in the end ultimately escape that judgment that has already been pronounced over all of those who have sinned against God Almighty. He is a just God, and sin will not stand in His presence. And if you are not covered with the blood of Christ on the cross that paid for the sin that you committed, then you will pay for your own sin. Let us judge each other. Let us judge each other rightly so that they do not get judged in the end. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the sacrifice and the payment. He is the advocate and he is the judge. And he has done everything that needed to be done in order to set you free from condemnation. Will you continue to go your own way? Will you continue to love your own happiness and desires and spit in the face of Jesus Christ? Or will you repent today? Are you willing to receive judgment? Are you willing to give it in a loving way that seeks redemption and reconciliation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? The altar is open. We need a revival in our churches as some are already coming. We need a revival in our churches. And as I said before, as our world spins out of control in this downward spiral towards sinful desire and pleasure, we should not bear up our arms, but we should bow our heads on bended knee. We need Jesus. Let us pray together, if nothing else, for our nation. Let us pray together, if nothing else, for our brothers in here. Let us pray, if nothing else, for the unchurched who don't even acknowledge Christ. Let us pray for the glory of God. Come.